Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to the Got a Minute podcast. I'm Larson Hicks and I'm joined by Pastor Rich Lusk. How are you doing today, sir? Great to be with you, Larson. Yeah, man. It's good to be with you. It's been a I don't know. I think maybe we took a week longer than we meant to uh, in between podcasts, but uh, it worked out. It's been a busy couple of weeks for me, and I'm sure it has for you too. Uh, you, did I hear you? Uh, you had a you had an injury or something? <laughs> Is that not public? Yeah, Sorry, me, me and Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> we're both on injured reserve. That's right. He's getting paid a little more while he rehabs than yeah. I am. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got a torn Achilles tendon, so that has uh, that's kind of. That's a career Pretty ender there, Rich. Bit. Yeah. So that's a career ender. I think I, you're I, I uh hope not. I hope yeah. not. But. No, for sure. That's the kind of that's that's the kind of injury that you don't come back from. Uh so you know, you're gonna be stuck with this pastoral stuff, it sounds like, for the rest of your I'll have to win to victory. <laughs> like Jacob. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I have gotten a lot of mileage out of the foot wound and the, the bruised heel. I That's mean, good. It's a, you know, you kind of, as a preacher, you kind of turn yourself into a living sermon illustration. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, we all know that that's all you do when you preach. It's just a bunch of, bunch of what illustrations out of your own life. It's really just story time, yeah, yeah. you know. Story time with Rich. With Rich. <laughs> that's what the people want Mr. these Rogers days. Anyway. <laughs> that's right. Um. Well, Rich, we've, we've been on this Gilder kick uh, for the last couple of episodes, and we left ourselves uh, uh, the last uh, section of the book, last third. I have to uh, apologize, and I'm not, I'm not through it yet. I got distracted with some other reading this week, and, and also um, writing uh, just submitted an article for a, uh, for a magazine, and, uh, which I'm not a writer, so, um, so it was especially painful for me. It felt like I was back in college or high school, um, behind on my deadline and everything. Writing else. is actually more painful for writers than for non-writers. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. You know, they, they say a writer is someone for whom writing is especially difficult. Hmm. I think there, there's a lot of truth in that. Well, maybe that makes well, me a writer. Whatever your writer's I, block are writers. <laughs> what's that? The only people that ever get writer's block are writers. Oh gosh, that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah, maybe that makes me a writer because it's it's difficult for me. I think for me, um, it's well, it's funny that that whole um, I don't know who who the quote is. You you might know the quote, but like if you're if you're going to ask me to speak for an hour, I, I only need a few minutes per, per, to prepare. And if, if right, you want me to speak right. for thirty minutes, I need a week. And if you want me to speak for fifteen, I need a a month or something something yeah, like that. I think that's Woodrow Wilson. Maybe this okay. That. And I, and I'm sure I'm messing up all the, all the, the timeframes there, but, but that whole idea, like I can, if you just want to plop a microphone in front of me and have me talk about a topic for two hours, I, I can do that all day. Um, but if, if you want me to actually say something in 1500 words, you know, um, that's, that takes some effort. So what magazine can we look for your writing in? Fight, laugh, feast. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. They have a magazine. So. Um, yeah. So I, they asked me to write this thing like, like a month ago and I said, yes. And like, and I, you know, drafted, a, you know, uh, uh, about a thousand word kind of draft and thought, you know, I'm only 500 words away. 
And then uh, when I really sat down and start working on it, I realized like I've, I've got I got a lot of work to do on this. So it's it's swelled to about three thousand words, and and now I'm trying to whittle it back down. So anyway, fun stuff. Fun stuff. Yeah, it's yep. based based business. Uh, the war for economic freedom. I think mm. is the title they gave me to mm. work with. So that's good. That sounds really yeah. good. Yeah. So anyway, so I those are my excuses for not being uh, up to speed on my on my Gilder reading. So let's punt on Gilder till next episode. But uh, you sent over an article that I did have time to read because it was only a, a ten minute read, um, and that was the misunderstood reasons uh, that millions of Chris of Americans stopped going to church. And I believe yeah. Yeah. who wrote this thing. This is Jake Meter. Okay, and, uh, I think he usually writes at Mere Orthodoxy, and he's got a podcast, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, this article came out in The Atlantic, which, of course, yeah. is a secular publication. Sure. Uh, but Meter's kind of become a, a Christian public intellectual. And uh, so, um, this, yeah, I thought this was an interesting article to interact with. So uh, let's give it a shot. Yeah, well, maybe um, since I'm sure a lot of the folks listening have not read this thing yet, can you uh, can you give us uh, just the broad strokes overview of what what's kind of the premise of the article? Yeah, so he talks about how and, and he so he's he's identified a problem. There's actually a book coming out here pretty soon uh, called The Great Unchurching. Okay, and uh, so he talks about that a little. I think like the Great Dechurching of America de-churching. or something like that. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't remember the exact title, but it's something like that. So it's basically about uh, how many people are dropping out of church in Mm. America. We've seen church membership plummet. We've seen church attendance plummet. Uh, COVID, of course, greatly accelerated this. There's a lot of people that left the church and just never came back. And maybe they said they were going to just start watching online. And of course, that doesn't last for very long. And so Meter wants to look into this and basically uh, explore their thesis. Why is this happening? Why are so many people dropping out of church in America? Hmm. And um, basically what he wants to argue and my understanding from what i took away from this is that he's basically following the thesis of the book i'm sure he's got some of his own thoughts added in uh to this but um there are certain uh well actually the subtitle i think captures it the defining problem driving people out is just how american life works in the 21st century Hmm. And, and, and I, there, there are things, so I'll, I'll tell you up front, there are things about this article that I agreed with and really sympathized, sympathized right. with in terms of how he describes the challenges that we have in modern American life. But there's a flip side to this where I think he really misses something. Uh, the article doesn't really make a compelling case for what people actually miss, the most important thing that they miss when they leave church, assuming they, they, they leave a faithful church. And I think in a way, the article ends up making excuses for people who are dropping out of church as if to say, well, it's just too hard. It's too mm-hmm. hard. You know, in modern yeah. American life, it's too hard to make uh, to make it to church uh, because we're, we're so busy. And I want to yeah. say, well, look, if you make church a priority, then uh, you're going to be there and, and you'll push other things out of your schedule. If if you're if you're busy and you push push church out of the schedule for the sake of other things, it just means church never had that high a priority for you. Uh, whereas if church does have a high priority for you, then church will stay on your schedule and other things will get pushed out. And so that's the, so right. re- what it really comes down to is 
at least part of what the issue comes down to, is our ecclesiology. How do we understand what the church is? And I think right. that's where his article really comes up short. And so maybe, you know, as we, we'll kind of go into some of the details and, and, and part of the article that I really like. And uh, then there was actually another article. I didn't send this one to you, Larson, so I'll catch you by surprise with this one. Another article that came out uh, by a woman named Carmel Richardson, who's done a lot of good writing. I've, I've really enjoyed reading her stuff over the last, okay. I don't know, maybe a couple of years or so. And uh, she's got her own take on it. And maybe we can come to that at the end because I think it's, it's a pretty helpful article. So, What's that uh, one called, Richard? What's up? What's that one called? Uh, that one is called Why Americans Left Church. Uh, and, and the subtitle of that one is They Didn't Need Another Sunday Supper Club. Okay, so where's mm -hmm. Meter's big point is you need church because you need community. She's going to say, actually, community is not enough to keep people in church. They need, they need, it needs theological grounding. It needs more than just the horizontal. You need the vertical as well in order to understand why church really matters. And at the end, uh, one thing I like about the article is she actually uses uh, a church from our denomination, Larson. She uses Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, uh, to really make the case and, and quotes Doug Wilson a little bit as to why church life is so important. Uh, but in the Meter article, let me, let's talk about what I liked about the Meter article first. Uh, are there certain things about how American life works in the 21st century that make church attendance hard? As our society has gotten more and more secular, which you could say the secularization and the de-churching are really just two ways of describing the same thing. Yeah. There is no doubt there are more and more things that compete with our attention uh, and, and that keep compete for our time that would drive church out of our schedule. I'll just give you one example. You know, we both live in what's called the Bible Belt, Larson. Yeah. And uh, so this is where the 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 residual Christian influence is greater here than it is in other parts of the country. And yet, just over the last, let's say, thirty years, uh, I've I've seen so much more. Uh, for example, kids sports leagues yeah. have games and tournaments and whatnot on Sunday yeah. morning. Yeah. That you could say, yeah, it, it used to be that you didn't have to choose between church attendance and, you know, your youth baseball league, Little League Baseball, right. Uh, right. because right. the Little League Baseball schedule respected the fact that a lot of people were going to go to church on a Sunday morning. So they didn't schedule anything. There. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or well, that's a that's a chicken and egg and thing, right? Changed. Yeah, that's a chicken and egg thing. Uh, the, the sports, I think... Um, the sports started doing sports on Sunday because people weren't going to church probably. Right. It's another excuse. Uh, yeah. You could look at it either way, which, 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 which was first. Did people stop right. going to church and say, Oh, we can play this on Sunday morning or did Sunday yeah. morning uh, sports activities start getting scheduled and people said, Oh, well we need to go to that instead of go to church because we want our right. kid to excel in this athletic endeavor. Right. So what the you know, meter points out that uh, participation in what he calls a religious community, that's kind of vague language. Um, probably too open-ended, but I, I do think there's some truth to this. Participation in a religious community, he says, generally correlates with better health outcomes and longer life, higher financial generosity, more stable families. I mean, kind of think about the book of Proverbs. You know, sure. if you go with the grain of the way God made you, if you go with the grain of how God created the universe, then yeah. then all all things being equal, everything else being equal. Uh, it will go better for you. And so you can say people who um, take one day out of seven to gather for public worship of the living God are going to get better results and live better lives, higher quality lives than right. those who 
reject God altogether and pay him no attention and um, just go their own way and live lives of, of total autonomy. Of course, your family life is going to be better and more stable. Your marriage is going to be healthier. Um, things like financial generosity, that's a product of stewardship. Over the years, I you know I've seen that people who are committed to tithing generally do much better. You might think, oh, well, they're penalizing themselves 10% by, you know, they're tithing to the church. And so surely they're going to be worse off financially. But actually, in case after case, I've seen people do so much better when they tithe. It makes you a better steward. Sure. Uh, it makes you more financially disciplined as a person, not to mention that you've just got the blessing of God because yeah. you're seeking to be obedient. So you'd rather have 90% with God's blessing than 100% without God's blessing. Um, and, you know, things like better health outcomes, longer life. I mean, generally, you're just you're going to be uh, you're going to live a healthier lifestyle. You're not going to be given over to drugs and alcohol abuse. Uh, you're going to you know, probably in general just be a better steward of all that God has given to you, including your body. So. Right. So, of course, participating in a religious community has, you know, I'll just say Christian community has all kinds of benefits that would pertain to the things of this life. But what Meter really wants to focus on is community. So, mm -hmm. so he says that reading his article, the real benefit of being a part of a church is that it plugs you into a community, a community of mutuality and care, uh, right. a community where you can suffer together, where you can have your needs met uh, in times of crisis. So he says... Uh, and here he's talking about the, the, the great de-churching book that's just about to come out. I've not read the book, only this article. But he says, uh, the book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary mm -hmm. America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, uh, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. So basically, he says, because people are out there pursuing their professional interests because of workism, we, we, could, we could say that's the idolatry of work, the obsession with work and with getting ahead and, and, and making money, perhaps, um, the church gets squeezed out. Now, I think the way he's framed this in terms of your professional prospects, it's a very kind of white collarish kind of way to put it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not as convinced that most of America is obsessed with work as he seems to suggest. No, I, There's I, a certain I, layer, certain strata of our society for whom that is true. For sure. But I think for Americans in general, I, if anything, I think they've got the opposite problem. They're not working enough. Far too many men have dropped out of the workforce altogether. Yeah. Uh, so this, this, the way this is set up, it's really only dealing, you could say, with a higher strata of our society. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that comment, um, Rich. The, the, and I haven't read that there's an article linked, uh, another Atlantic article on this idea of workism. And, uh, and I just, I have to call BS on it. I, I wish that, you know, I mean, I, I haven't read it, so I, I, I won't, I won't call BS on it because I haven't read it, but I'll call BS on this idea that most people are working too much and that's what's keeping them, uh, from church or from community or from, you know, other, uh, family oriented pursuits or whatever. It's, it's, um, I, I just don't, I don't see that. I mean, I, maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't see that. I'm sure in certain strata, like you're saying, 
but I, my experience is that people are less ambitious than they've ever been. People are more satiated by, by just access to cheap entertainment. Um, yeah. Yeah. and, 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 uh, and the lifestyle, you know, of, of having zero or, or maybe one maximum two children and, having more of a designer lifestyle that Instagram, you know, that, that Instagram's really well, you know, taking a lot of pictures of all the, all the, you know, things that your family are doing like that, that seems to be more of the, more of the lure that's drawing people away from, from uh, investing in church than, than work. Yeah. I, I actually think this is, and you tell me what you think. I, a lot of the people that I found who are most concerned, and I want to, I mean, I workism kind of to call it that kind of prejudice is the case. Like you've yeah. made an idol out of your work, but, but so many of the people I know who have been most successful in their jobs, and I don't think they made an idolatry out of money or out of career success, but they've, they just, they've worked hard. Their hard work has paid off. They have been successful are also faithful churchmen. Yeah, uh, and I would actually say being faithful churchmen has contributed to their success. It is it has helped them in their pursuit yeah. of vocational excellence. So, yeah. I, so I, I, yeah. I do agree. There, there there are a certain number of people out there who do make an idol out of their work, and maybe work yeah. squeezes out church. But I think actually. Um, we've got a much bigger problem in our society on the other end of the spectrum, people who are not ambitious enough, people who yeah. are not working as hard as they should. And also, again, the way he's framed this, it's all about your professional prospects. That completely ignores blue-collar America. Yeah. Um, I think we need to ask, why don't why aren't blue-collar workers coming to church? I mean, there's a right. huge demographic right. here that the church yeah, is largely missing. And I think there you'd have to look at a different set of issues. It's not workism. Uh, that's keeping them away. It's not because right. they're working too many hours in the factory or in the field or as a mechanic or what have you. It, it, it's really more, I think, in a lot of cases, at least for the men, uh, that the church is so effeminate that mm -hmm. men who often work in those kinds of vocations yeah. feel very, um, I would say, just um, out of place when they come into a lot of uh, evangelical uh, or even reformed type churches, so that that's yeah. a huge problem as well. So you know, it's a, which that's something we've talked about before. So we don't need to go further with it here necessarily. But um, I, I'm not I'm not convinced just on the surface of things uh, by his, the the people that I know that have dropped out of church did not do it because they were too obsessed with work. Right. I'll just say that. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, that may be an issue in a, in, a, in a handful of cases. But, you know, he goes on, he gives the example of people working a 60 or 70 hour work week. OK, and I know, and especially in a lot of larger cities, that's pretty much the norm. OK, but I've known a lot of people who worked 60, 70, even 80 hour weeks and still made it to church. So it can be done. But he says, then add to that, you know, your 60 or 70 hour work week, add to that 15 hours of commute time, which is pretty normal for a lot of Americans. And suddenly something like two thirds of their waking hours in the week are already accounted for. And so when a friend invites them to a Sunday morning brunch, they probably want to go to church, but they also want to see that friend because they haven't been able to see them for months. The friend wins out. Well, I would ask, why does the friend win that went out? That's not an obvious uh, choice. I mean, don't yeah. they have friends at church they want to see? Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, it's kind of like he tells this, this story, this narrative, and it's not at all, obvious to me that that's actually what's happening. Yeah. Um, and particularly well, since he comes back around to say that the big advantage of church is community. Well, if so, then aren't you going to have friends there? Right. 
Yeah, and 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 I think he he makes a, a you know, and I and I like the statement towards the end of the article about your identity, uh, about church becoming a a source of identity that's that's essential for people. I I couldn't agree more with that statement. Uh, but again, just to jump on this this point, I don't think work is a sense of identity, and I actually think that's part of the problem we're seeing in America. I know David Bonson's talked a lot about this that people don't. They don't put enough of their identity in their work. They don't have, you know, it used to be that your last name, your surname was 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 your 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 work, yeah. you know, your um, or right, 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 carpenter, etc. So so it's like, um, you know, Miller, uh, I go on and on, but but yeah, the the what's happened, I think, more is that our our identity is more defined by our hobbies and our extracurricular things and and. Or um, products we buy, yeah, the celebrities we, buy. we associate ourselves with, social right. media accounts that we follow. That's right. That's right. So yeah, I think I think identity is a problem that the church can solve, and uh, and 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 it's also driving the fact that people don't attend because they no longer see their identity. But I think that's you know coming back to that. So churches churches have responded to consumerism and 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 sort of this existentialism by by providing you know by transforming church into another one of those things it's another it's another kind of uh cultural add-on you know that you can kind of mix and match and 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 fit to your you know do you like do you like a church that has people that dress this way or do you like a church that has people that dress this way uh you know um and so it's become something more it's 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 just become one of many other things that you consume um and and I think that's that's another thing that's driving this this uh, decline, um, because people are. It's not so much that people are saying they don't have time for it; they're just not. It's just it's just lower down the list of priorities of things they're interested in consuming. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and and, and churches that market themselves uh, don't really do themselves any favors. You know, that that yeah. turn to a kind of yeah. marketing strategy and basically want to say, "Hey, look, um, we can give you a great deal." You know, we're we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna cost you very little to come, to come be a part of our church. Right. And there's gonna be this great this great payoff, and it might be in the form of you know basically free babysitting, or it might right. be in the form of some kind of you know entertaining, feel good yeah. uh, performance on you know on a Sunday. There's any number of, of of forms that can take, but basically they have conceded all of this ground and capitulated to the culture. Right. And that's not really what church is about either. So I just, uh, we can wrap up with a meter article and move on to, to Carmel Richardson's response here in just a second. But I, 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 you know, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I do totally agree with, uh, with meter that there are certain aspects of modern American life because we have secularized that are not friendly to the church in the way they used to be. Like we talked about the sports leagues. And I also agree that, community is a huge need. And if people are not finding community in the church, then they might be yeah. tempted to go seek it elsewhere. And so they may deprioritize church further. Right. I think that's a mistake for reasons we'll get to in just a bit. But then he, he asked the question, he says, what can churches do in such a context? He says, in theory, the church could be the antidote to all of this. Okay. So you want community, uh, you're really busy with work, 
And so what do you do? You know, you've got to decide between brunch with a friend or church on a Sunday morning. Which do you do? He says the church could be the antidote to all of that. What is more needed in our time than a community marked by sincere love, sharing what they have from each according to their ability and to each according to their need, eating together regularly, generously serving others and living lives of quiet virtue and prayer? Okay, I agree with him. Okay. Now, I don't think that comes anywhere close to exhausting what church is about. And again, we'll come to that in just a minute. But if we're just thinking in terms of our horizontal needs, our need for fellowship and community, yeah, the church should be a place where that need is being met, where we are one anothering one another, where we have that kind of community. He goes on to talk about how a healthy church can be a safety net in times of crisis. And so, you know, people can make meals for each other when a baby's born, or they can help if there's a job crisis or an economic crisis in a the family, they can get some financial assistance, all of that. And all of that's really important. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he, he go, and, he, and I think he's right about this, too. He says a vibrant, life-giving church requires more, not less time and energy from its members. OK, you yeah. would really have to invest in the community. OK, you yeah. would really have to say, OK, yes, I'm willing to make the meal for that. If I want to have a meal made for me in a time of crisis, I need to be willing to make a meal for somebody else. Yeah. You know, if I want somebody to come visit me when I'm going through a hard time, I need to be the shoulder to cry on or the, you know, the, the one who shows up to be with the person who's going through a crisis or a difficult time in life. I need to be the one who's willing to set everything else aside and go do that. And, right. and, and so, you know, are we willing to make the sacrifices necessary to form that kind of community? I think, I think those are great questions to ask. Yeah. Um, he talks about, uh, he's got a, a, a Stanley Harawas uh, yeah, quote like here. Like he talks quote. about uh, Harawas has captured the problem well when he said that pastoral care has become obsessed with the personal wounds of people in advanced industrial societies who have discovered that their lives lack meaning. And the meter adds, he says, the difficulty is that many of the wounds and aches provoked by our current order aren't of a sort that can be managed or life hacked away. Mm -hmm. They are resolved only by changing one's life, by becoming a radically different sort of person belonging to a radically different sort of community. Now, I can agree with that as far as he goes. Uh, I don't think the job of the pastor is to just help people with their personal wounds. That, you know, the pastor is not, we got to stop thinking of the pastorate as one of the helping professions. You know, people mm -hmm. talk about helping professions. That's not the pastorate. The pastor's job is to lead the people in spiritual and liturgical warfare. That's his fundamental job. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other things flow out of that, some of them which could look kind of like what Howard Weiss describes here. But that's not the fundamental job of the pastor. The pastor's mm -hmm. job is to be the priest who takes the sword of the word and cuts the people up with it so their lives can be rearranged and transformed into yeah. a living sacrifice that's pleasing to God. That's the job of the pastor. Yeah. Um, he butchers the people with the word of God so they can be put back together in resurrected form. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so... Um, and that does lead to a radically different kind of community and a radically different way of, of living. Now, I don't like the example Meter goes on to give of this. He goes on to talk about going to New York City for several days where he visited a group of pacifist Christians who live from a common purse. Okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that, that, just, that has been tried many times, has never worked for long, certainly doesn't work yeah. when uh, you know families and children and whatnot are involved in uh, so that, that's a disaster. And it's, yeah. it's a, to me, it's kind of sad that Meter is so lacking in wisdom that he can't see that that kind of thing is just not the way to go. Yeah. Uh, but 
Uh, I do think that a a church that has a healthy communal life where people are really sharing their lives together, where they are uh, improvising in a faithful and wise way how they adapt to the circumstances of the negative world, the hostile world that we are increasingly finding ourselves in, uh, where we're we're finding ways as the church to, to build strong, thick bonds of community between us where we really do love one another and serve one another. I don't think that requires you to drop out of life altogether. I don't think it requires forming a commune. It will require certain kinds of sacrifices and perhaps reprioritizing things. It may mean that you don't get to binge watch that Netflix show you really wanted to because you're making a meal or you're having people into your home or you're going out to, 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 to meet with somebody who is, uh, just in need of, of somebody to sit down and pray with them. So so yeah. it is going to mean a restructuring of our lives in certain ways. Because yeah. for, for the typical American today, everything revolves around your own personal comfort and your own personal entertainment. Right. And so nothing gets in the way of watching the game. Nothing gets in the way of watching Netflix. Nothing gets in the way of the things that you want to do for yourself, for you to enjoy. And this kind of community is saying, no, you need to be sacrificing your time and and things you might rather want to do in order to show hospitality or in order to to go out and serve someone who is in need in some kind of way. So I I think that meter is is close. But, you know, in terms of what we need with community, I think there's actually more to the church than community. That's what I want to get to in just a minute. But I know you wanted to say something about that. Well, there were a lot of really good things you said there, and and it triggered a couple of thoughts. Uh, I'll just mention I'll mention two of them really quickly, and if you want to respond, go for it. Uh, but one was was the idea that that um, just going kind of going back a little bit uh, further, um, this idea that that um, you mentioned that that uh, the people that you've seen who are the most successful in business are are actually the most engaged churchmen. Um, I've experienced that in, in myself and, and I, the company I used to work for, which is wildly successful right now, growing like crazy, uh, has, has over a thousand employees has purchased other businesses in, you know, all over the world. Um, the four, three of the four executives that ran and founded that company, uh, were elders at their churches at three mm. different churches here in yeah. Huntsville. Um, and, and one of the guys I'm good friends with um, is also two of the guys are on the one's the chairman of the board of a private school locally. The other's on the board of another private school. I mean, these guys are like pouring themselves out. They're super busy. Um, and and yet uh, and, and they're serving their churches uh, with a, a, a lot of a lot of their life. They're pouring a lot of their life into church. So I, there's something to this. This Protestant work ethic, you know, um, I was researching that term recently and found that it, it, it's also it was also been termed the Calvinist work ethic or the Puritan yeah, work ethic. Yeah, yeah that's um, right. but that's something that we've lost, and that's something you know, if you if you read um, Alexis de Tocqueville's um, book on on America, um, you're coming to America and seeing what it's like. I mean, there's this kind of restless entrepreneurial spirit that he sees just everywhere. And, and it's really kind of the, one of the big themes of the book is these people are just crazy. You know, they're just working like crazy, you know, and they're thrilled. And I I think there's something to that. I think we've lost, um, I think we've laziness 
at, you know, apathy, boredom begets more and more laziness and apathy and boredom, you know? And so when people, I think people, corporations have sort of gotten us comfortable with the idea of, of just having a job, you know, just pulling a lever for a living or whatever. And, yeah. and that there's nothing thrilling or inspiring or exciting about that. And, and I think it, it, it does kind of eat away at people's souls. So anyway, that was one point that I think our approach to work, our, our lack of, I actually would, 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 would turn around this guy's uh, argument on its head and say, I, I think actually our lack of engagement in yeah. the marketplace and our work is part of what's driving this, this general apathy and laziness um, mm-hmm. that's leading people away from joining a community where they're going to be asked to serve. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was one one comment. The other that you said, I really loved your your description of of a pastor, uh, not as a part of the helping profession, but as you know, the the job of a pastor is to cut the members up uh, with the word of God, uh, and put them back together uh, through worship. I think that um, this is something I think is a lot easier said than done, and and what I mean by that is. It's one thing for a pastor to have a lot of bravado, you know, um, in the pulpit and talk a big game. I think the hardest part of being a pastor is actually going and sitting down with individual men and calling them out on their sin. Um, that's something that pastors, uh, and, and, and that's not helping. It's not like a, it's not like a, a member saying, would you please come over and, and call me out (laughs) on my sin? Um, But what I what I've experienced in my short time these last couple of years as an elder is that whenever we as a session have done the hard work to really actually dig in and discipline people, it always leads to I think greater peace and joy yeah. and faithfulness from the people that we are disciplining. And um and there's that moment of terror or of whatever it is, you know, fear. Um about doing that difficult work of going, Hey, here's what the word of God says. Here's what you're doing. Here's where that's wrong. You know, you've got to knock it off. Um, and, uh, and here's why it's like, that's, that's something that nobody in society anymore is willing to do. Parents no longer confront their children about their sin. Certainly teachers are not confronting kids about their sin. Uh, I've, I've often said I think the only people in American society that can talk to, to young men, especially, or just to men, honestly, are football coaches. It's the only, yeah. Yeah. It's the it's only, yeah. right, it's the only profession left, or, or, or drill instructors, maybe, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's a big hole, big gap that's been left there, and I think your description of what a pastor's job is actually really speaks very uh, very clearly to that point that, that pastors, you're not called to be a shoulder to cry on, uh, exclusively a shoulder to cry on or an entertainer or a Ted talk, you know, giver or whatever. A huge part of your job is to, is to get out the sword of the word and, and carve people up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that's something that's missing from Meter's account. When he talks yeah. about what people with the Great Dechurching, what are people missing out on, his answer yeah. is basically community. But here's the thing. People will find community elsewhere. Yeah. They might find right. community at their local bar or pub. They yeah. might find community in their place of work. I mean, that's actually that actually really does happen. People find community and friendship in their place of work. They might find it in their neighborhood. They might find it in a civic organization. There's lots of other places where you can find some kind of community outside of the church. So I don't think that Meter's answer really addresses the great de-churching de and why it is such a tragedy, actually. Mm -hmm. It is true people will miss out on a particular kind of community, and we can talk about that, but there's a lot more going on. I, I think it was G.K. Chesterton uh, who was once asked why he went to church, and his answer was to get my sins forgiven. And, you know, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, then that doesn't really, then it's like, okay, yeah, just stay in bed, fine. But if you are a sinner and you know you need forgiveness, where are you going to hear that word of forgiveness proclaimed? Yeah. Yeah. Where are you going to get to eat and drink your forgiveness in a tangible way? Okay, what happens in church is more than just a community building exercise. What happens when we gather as the church, yes, it does form us together. It does unite us together in various ways. But we even have to ask then, what is it that binds us together? Community means common unity. It's a yeah. common life. But what is the, the shared life that we have as the church is, is not just the shared life that you would get from, say, going to a sporting event where you've got 80,000 people who are sharing together and cheering for a team. The shared life we have when we come together as the church is the life of Christ. It is the life of the risen Christ communicated to us and binding us together by the work of his spirit. And, and there's some, so there's something there that goes far yeah. beyond what you can get anywhere else. Yeah. And further, we know that in the church is where Christ makes himself and all of his benefits most especially available. And so Christ is the one who suffered and died for our sins that we might be forgiven. Where is that forgiveness then to be found? How is that forgiveness distributed to us? Well, it's primarily through the waters of baptism, the bread and wine of the Eucharist, and the word as it's, as, as it's preached, as it's proclaimed, as it's given to us yeah. Uh, yeah. In, 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 a, in a public form yeah. uh, in the church's gathering. And that's completely missing from Meter's uh, assessment yeah. of what's happening. What are people missing when they don't go to church? They're really missing out on Jesus. They're yeah. missing out on the gospel. And that's, yeah. that, you know, so what is behind the great de-churching of America? It's not just that people have decided to, uh, you know, they, they've got a certain number of priorities and church has fallen down the list. And yeah. so work is more important or brunch was more important than church or kids sporting league was more important than church. What's really happening, this is apostasy. You know, John Calvin says yeah. it is always disastrous to leave the church. It is apostasy. We need to call it what it is. Uh, and it, so, so it's abandoning the Christian faith for some kind of idolatry. And it may be very spiritual sounding. It may borrow a lot of Christian language, but it's still idolatry. Okay, because yeah. the only form of Christian faith that's given to us in the Bible is one that is tethered to a, a, a local Christian community, a congregation, a church that is meeting together in God's presence. You know, wherever two or three are gathered, there is Jesus yeah. in their midst. Yeah. That's meeting together regularly in Jesus' name 
to hear the word and to yeah. celebrate the sacraments. And that's yeah. it. There's no, there's no other place to be a Christian. And so even if yeah. the church has hurt you in some way, even yeah. if you've had a bad experience in the church, uh, even if there are people in the church that you don't like or that you think are hypocrites, hey, guess what? Christians are sinners too. Being in the church is never going to be easy. It's always going to be difficult. But there's no other place to be a Christian. There's no other way to be a Christian. There's no other way to find what we most desperately need, the, the grace that is our salvation, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of transformation. It's concentrated in the church. Obviously, God works in our lives at other times when we're not yeah. gathered for worship. But the, 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 the most central place where he works is when we gather for worship. And if we want God to be at work in us in other times and places, we need to be in the church because everything else is going to flow out of that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I, I, as you're talking, the th one of the themes that just keeps coming back to me is, is I think community, you know, you're, I think you're right in pointing out that this article really misses the mark by by identifying community as really the answer or the or the the real uh, <clears throat> solution that that church provides to people. Um, you know, I think it's better to to talk about a body because um, that's the scriptural term that you become a member of a body or a family. You know, is another is another term. But but even the body in the the way that Scripture talks about the body, the body has a head. The body mm. is hierarchical, mm. and a community community appeals to our egalitarian sentiments. You know, where everything's flat, and I just need to have more people to be around. Um, uh, but that but but that's the problem of of modernity. One of the major problems in modernity is that. We don't want to have a head. We don't want to have anybody above us. Um, right. We don't want to be under authority. We don't want to be under anybody. Um, at the same time, I think the reason why some people get sucked into workism, the few people that do, it's probably because they have a boss who's treating them like a father. <clears throat> and and right. their boss right. is actually asking them to do hard things. And, and giving them loyalty. Yeah, giving them feedback, telling them good job, telling them do better next time. You know, all of those kinds of things. And so I think there is there there is a, I think what I find is people are looking for I, I think of that um, that children's book uh, where the where the ba you know the baby bird falls out of the nest and starts walking around are you my mother are you my, oh, mother? my mother it's like yeah. it's like I I feel like that's the world is is full of people like that walking around looking for someone to be their mother someone to be their father someone to to and and this is one of the you know our church doesn't have a our pastors don't wear a robe or, or, or a, a collar. And, you know, we call our, our pastors, you know, it's, it's fairly casual, you know. Um, but there's something to the idea of the collar, the robe, the title, even, you know, Catholic churches or Orthodox churches call their pastor father. Um, there's something about that, that that lends gravitas to the position and uh, and and I think it's I think it's an antidote um, in some ways to to modern America. Um, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, it really is. Um, you know, going back to what you were saying about bosses, I mean, obviously some people have bad bosses, but people sure. with good bosses, I mean, they often do want to please them. They appreciate, uh, the leadership. And a lot of times what you get, a, a, a lot of, you know, sometimes the working world is overrun with egalitarianism, but a lot of times it's it's one of those places, I mean, sports would be another area where egalitarianism yeah. is not really, um, you know, you just, 
egalitarian, egalitarianism can make inroads everywhere. You know, this whole idea yeah. of, 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 of equality and, and, and uh, flattening out all distinctions and hierarchy and whatnot. But the reality is in the military, in much of the working world, in sports, you still have to have some kind of hierarchy to make things work. I mean, that's just yeah. how, that's the world God made. It's really yeah. that way in the family and everything too. But you got so many churches that are trying their hardest to be egalitarian institutions and yeah. that just doesn't work and that doesn't inspire any loyalty. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's the old line that, uh, what is it? Um, you know, people don't follow titles, they follow courage. Mm. And I, I agree with you. The titles are, can be significant. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, people will respect and honor leadership. And I, again, yeah. if you want to talk about the great de-churching, I think one reason is the church has been her own worst enemy. She yeah. is supposed to be the cultural and social leader. Yeah. And instead what's happened is the church yeah. has tried to conform herself far too much to the ways of the world. And so That's instead right. of being a radically different kind of community standing out by her way of life, by what she teaches, believes, and practices, uh, the church has tried to ape the world and mimic the world in all kinds of ways. And you see this especially in, you know, say, megachurch culture, which is trying to basically take whatever the world does and then repackage it in a Christian way. So often that's what's happening. But it, there's all kinds of other ways where this is happening in churches of all sizes, uh, where it's really about trying to imitate what's happening in the broader culture rather than challenge and change the culture in which mm -hmm. we live. And that just doesn't inspire any loyalty. It doesn't, it doesn't, right. it doesn't uh, create, you know, aspirations, you know, where people will say, you know, uh, this, you know, church is worth it because it's, it's so different. And, and there, it, yeah, there's a kind of rigor to it and it can be difficult, uh, but it is worth it. And people just don't see that. So I think the great de-churching can be looked at in a lot of different ways. You know, you've got men who are de-churching for one reason. You've probably got women who are de-churching for another uh, you've got, um, you know, people who, uh, did not, never really had any loyalty to their church to begin with. And then COVID happened. And so it was just easier to never go back. They were in the habit that broke the habit. They never really had any reason to go back. They were never yeah. really given a compelling reason why they should be in church. And I think yeah. a lot of times that's on the churches and on the pastors. They didn't give people a compelling reason and just entertain, you know, if it's about entertainment, honestly, they're going to get better entertainment. Uh, sitting at home on their sofa. Uh, yeah. If it's just about an inspiring speech, they can find something better to listen to on YouTube or a podcast. Yeah. Uh, so that the, those things just don't do it. And again, even community, even if you make it about community, while I do think churches should excel in community, there's yeah. a sense in which that is not enough to get people back to church or keep them in church either. If we want the de-churching to be replaced with a re-churching, we're going to have to do more. We're going to have to do better. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good word. It's a really good word. Yeah. So let me talk about this Carmel Richardson article for just a minute. I, I mentioned this at the start. It's called Why Americans Left Church. They don't yeah. need another Sunday supper club. Uh, she starts off, she says, the downfall of public Christianity in modern America has been well documented. What has not been studied nearly as closely, however, has been the source of the downfall, the devil driving the great unawakening. One thing I would say is when we talk about the great de-churching, Right. Uh, what are what are the kinds of churches that are dying? Mo so your mainline liberal churches that capitulated to modernism, capitulated to the culture, quit proclaiming the gospel, stop believing in 
this, you know, and miracles, all of that. I mean, th those churches you're, were called the mainline churches because they were the largest churches in, in American life. Those churches have been on a very uh, steady decline really since they gave in to modernism and, uh, and, and uh, liberal theology. And, you know, they obviously became very effeminate and they, yep. uh, they, they, I mean, really there, there is, there is no reason to get out of bed and go to that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if you don't believe that, then no, yep. you ought to stay in bed Sunday morning too. <laughs> you know, right. you should, you shouldn't rise on a Sunday morning to go to church. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead on that, right. that Sunday morning, that Easter morning. Uh, and so liberal churches have been in steady decline for a really long time. What is happening now is a lot of evangelical churches are experiencing sharp decline. But I, I, my sense of things is that it is a particular kind of evangelical church that is declining. And it's mm -hmm. those that have been basically uh, pandering to the culture the most. Yeah. So again, churches that become like the world lose their rationale for existing. Only churches that can stand contramundum against the world have a reason to exist. Yeah. So evangelical churches that are capitulating, say, on, on sexual issues that are becoming like the progressives and how they deal with the LGBTQ issue, um, they're losing members. I think churches that are demanding more of their members as we enter into you know what's called negative world more and more, churches that are um, taking a courageous stand, churches that are uh, in, you know insisting on uh, biblical orthodoxy and orthopraxy, you know the right right doctrine, biblical doctrine, biblical biblical way of life, biblical practices. Those churches to me seem to be holding their ground and in a lot of cases, even growing. I mean, my church has not grown as fast as your church, but we could point to our two churches. We could point to lots of churches in the CREC, um, lots of churches and other faithful denominations that even over the last few years, as this great de-churching has accelerated, have actually grown. And I think they've grown precisely because they have been willing to take a stand and be faithful. People know yep. exactly what they believe and why they believe it. Yep. Yeah, there, there are... Um... There are pitfalls, um, you know, if, if, you're, if your image or your, your primary identity is the fact that you're contramundum, you know, I, you, I've talked about this concept of kind of red pill addiction, and, uh, and that's, that's something for another conversation, but, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that, that I've thought a lot, I've, I've, uh, I think is relevant here is, is this idea that all institutions are inevitably going to die. And, um, and, and I think they die because they move from existing for the purpose of accomplishing a particular mission, uh, towards, uh, their mission becoming their continued existence, right? Uh, as a church's mission becomes, we have to stay relevant. We have to continue to exist at all costs. If that becomes the mission, then you're going to lose sight of the mission that you started uh, with in the first place and start to focus on, uh, we need to survive. So what do we do? To, and that's where the panic sets in. That's where the compromise sets in. That's where political correctness sets in. And, th and this is what happens to all institutions, whether it's a college or a church or a business you know, when, when, when you stop setting your eyes on the mission um, that, is, that, that is transcendent, should be transcendent, you know, if you're not aiming for something transcendent, then you're, then you're not aiming high enough. Um, 
when, when you take your eyes off of that and, and your and your mission becomes existence, that's usually the beginning of the end. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. Um, mission drift, mission creep. And again, churches do this thinking, you know, the, the, the mainline churches that capitulated um, theologically, you know, 100 plus years ago, uh, they, they thought that they would that they needed to adapt to modernity to save themselves and instead they killed themselves. They mm-hmm. thought they needed to fit in with the world in order you know the, the, the changing um, worldview of the mainstream culture in order to um, survive and again it's, it's proven to be just the opposite. Um, going back to, to Richardson's article, she does interact with Meter a little bit, and, and she quotes what he says about community, and she says that modern individualism, no doubt, has butchered community on the altar of individual achievement, so that is mm-hmm. a real issue. She says the church herself has played a role in this slaughter in ways that the churches cater to the culture, with st- churches styling themselves like businesses attracting customers rather than as guardians of the faith. She says this commercial approach tells church leaders to ask less of parishioners, not more, so that their economizing minds will recognize the good deal they're being offered. Thus, and here are some examples of ways that churches do this, sermons are shortened and thorny passages are avoided. Okay, So yeah. when, when churches start cutting corners in order to fit, the, you know, kind of conform to the ways of the world, the sermon yeah. is really one of the first things to go. I think oftentimes the, the music and whatnot changes with that too, because you're just trying to sure. entertain people. You don't want to offend them. So you basically avoid those those passages of the Bible and truths from scripture that are offensive to anybody. She goes on, she says, children of all ages are split up and taken out of the service for various, various Sunday schools and youth groups, basically free babysitting for the parents in a lot of cases. Not saying it's always wrong to have age-segregated classes for the youth, but... Uh, th- this kind of thing, especially taking the children out of uh, the Sunday service, I think is a big problem because that's where children belong. Children are uh, part of God's covenant family and they ought to be there. And that's part of their yeah. discipleship too. Services yeah. are live streamed to make attendance as easy as pressing play. Okay, well, here's yeah. the thing. What we have found, I think now this is pretty clear, you know, churches thought, oh, we'll go online and we'll reach people that way. Well, the reality is if somebody's going to get online, you think they're going to go for church or they're going to go for Netflix. Yeah. Watching church online, I realize there's still some people doing that after COVID, but most of the people who were watching online during COVID either have gone back to in-person church or they have dropped out of church altogether. They've apostatized. Okay. Yeah. Obviously you have people with health issues and whatnot that the online option you know, might be the only thing they can do if they can't, you know, they're invalids or whatnot, can't make it to church. But that's just not a valid option. And uh, and, and the very word church tells us that the word church means assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it means a, a kind of political or sacred assembly. And yeah, that's right. uh, so you can't you can't just do the online thing and think that that's an adequate substitute. She says this market approach to membership has led Americans to view Christianity as just another social club and an expendable one at that. I would say another product on a market full of products with nothing really unique about it. See, see, go back to what I said, you know, Chesterton's line, I go to church to get my sins forgiven. What the church has to offer that you can't get anywhere else, if you downplay that, of course the church loses its rationale for existing and it, and it becomes less attractive to people who just think, well, I mean, there's lots of other ways that I can get my, you know, my, say, relational needs met that don't involve church, that aren't messy the way church is. I can handpick a better community than what I would find in a local congregation where there may be a lot of people that I've got to learn to get along with that I don't particularly care for. 
So uh, Richardson goes on. She says, sociology gets confused, however, when it sees the correlation between responsibility and commitment and concludes that the solution to this great de-churching is to give everyone a job. Again, this can be great ways to get people plugged into your church, ways to get them involved, uh, you know, find things for them to do. And she says that. She says it's good for churches to demand physical things like more volunteers for children's chapel. Jobs should be given, yes, but they are only half the story. The missing piece is the cornerstone. If the church is not demanding enough of Americans for them to care to attend on Sunday, it is not demanding enough of itself theologically, too. Jordan Peterson made the same point. I think we talked about this a long time ago with his yeah. um, message to the churches, basically on behalf of young men. He says, look, part yeah. of the problem is you're not demanding enough. You've made it too easy to, 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 to be a part of this. And it's actually much more demanding than you're, than you're letting on. And so it is here. It's not just about finding volunteers to staff the nursery or sweep the floors. Those things have to be done. You need people who will do that. But church is about so, so much more than this. And that's really what she gets to in the rest of her article. She says, it's not just that Americans have left the church, it's that the church has left Americans, specifically hmm. those who want to live under the shield of biblical orthodoxy. And here she goes on and she uses the Southern Baptist Convention as an example. And she talks about how they are in danger of capitulating on women pastors as a way of pandering to the culture, even though it runs contrary to the Bible and contrary to the Baptist faith and message. Uh, they're, they're in some cases, now you could debate this, but at least some segments of the Baptist world are caving on that issue. Yeah. And then she says, all this watered down theology and minimal effort is supposed to make Christianity more palatable to non-Christians to make the bar so low that anyone can jump it. Yet as Burge and I'm not sure how to say the name, but this, these are the people writing in the de-churching book. As their study illustrates, the church's lack of demands is actually doing the opposite of growing its numbers. We think, oh, we'll make the sermons shorter and easier and less offensive and more people will stay. No, actually, that, that's not really the case. The people you want in your church are people who are hungry for the word. Oh, let's make the worship more entertaining and let's put a yeah. band up front so people don't really have to sing and they can just watch and listen. no. What you really need to do, I mean, they, that was part of the problem with the medieval church, is that people came to church to be spectators, and they came to watch a magic show, and they came to listen to a priest mumble in a language they couldn't understand. They just went to yeah. watch the spectacle of it. Well, a lot of American churches are that way today. People come to be not participants, but spectators to watch a religious show put on by the professionals. And that's not healthy or helpful. That's not how church life is supposed to work. That's not what the Christian life is about. And then I like this, and you'll like this too, Larson. She uses the CREC as a counterexample to this, specifically uh, Christchurch in Moscow with Doug yeah. Wilson. And she talks about how, yes, his content and his style have been controversial. But she says, under his leadership, his congregation, Christ Church, has remained committed to biblical orthodoxy on sexuality, marriage, and male headship, among other things. And especially since 2020, the church has exploded with growth. You were just out in Moscow. You've seen that. They have exploded with growth there. And listen to what Wilson says. So it's interesting. She reached out to Wilson for some quotes, and I like what he said. He says, our position on men and women is simply that of the Bible and which the church universally affirmed up until just a few years ago. We care about faithfulness to the word and not about popularity, which is one of the reasons for our popularity. When you care mm -hmm. about the word and not about the popularity, yeah. that's how you grow a church. Yeah. Okay. That's how you grow healthy Christians, and that's how, again, all things being equal, 
you grow a church. He even talks about the sense of community that they have. And he, he's careful to note that while community is really important, and that is a major reason people give for wanting to be a part of the congregation, he says the community is grounded in a shared commitment to the authority of Scripture, and it cannot exist apart from that. What binds us together is our shared commitment to Scripture, yeah. these shared convictions that we have that come from the Bible. Uh, and that's so important because, again, so many people want community, but they want it on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be able to dictate terms. I'll have community, but it's got to be with people who think, you know, who think this way or who, who you know, who do this thing over here. Uh, and they don't ever want to be challenged in any kind of way. They'll ha- they want mm-hmm. community, but they never want anything offensive or difficult to happen in that. Well, that's not a Christian community. And a Christian community will confront one another about sin. We'll confront one another about blind spots. We'll confront one another about ways in which we're failing to live up to the faith that we profess and and be obedient to Scripture. That's a different kind of community than what a lot of people who say they want community are looking for. Yep. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these articles about church growth, um, one of the things, one of the errors I feel like I, I see, and especially in the first one we looked at, was this this error of answering a fool according to his folly, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's listening to lame, shallow excuses that people give for why they don't come to church, whether it's because they're too busy or, or because they've been hurt by somebody or whatever. 99% of those are, are, are shallow, weak excuses that are not really the reason. You know, there's a difference between the reason that somebody has left your church and the answer that they give you when you ask them why, you know, those right, are two different right. things. Yeah. And, and so I, you know, I, I think the only reason that, that a pastor or, or, or session of elders or leaders of a church are asking that question, you know, and, and buying into and trying to address the, the, the answers that people give is, is really because they've already given up on, on the mission of the church. You know, they've mm-hmm. already given up mm-hmm. on it and now they're, they're in that, they're on their back foot already trying to figure out how to survive. And, and right. they're, they're not willing to do the hard work that uh, being a church uh, requires, you know, obedience to Christ and to his word. And so they're not willing to, they're not willing to even consider that potential option. So they want to now yeah. you know, do surveys and ask people while they're, while, why, why they're leaving. And they'll, you'll get all kinds of answers. Um, you're, you're just not going to get the truth. Um, you're just going to get, Distractions. Yeah, a lot of times asking people why they left your church is kind of like if a young man asks a girl why she broke up with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the worst possible question you can ask because you're not going to get yeah. the true. It's not going to be a helpful answer, and it, it's actually going to make you kind of look more pathetic. Churches need to know what they're about. Churches yeah. need to have a defined vision and mission, and they need to be able to say, "This is what we're about. This is where we take our stand." Come join us. In fact, that's what Wilson says at the end of this article where he's Mm -hmm. quoted uh, again. uh, He says, if the church is simply going to drift along behind the world, what is the point of being a Christian? Yeah. Yeah, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why bother getting out of bed? If 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 uh, everything that your church is going to tell you is going to be just parroting what you could already get in the world, why bother with it? Why mess with it? Only yeah. if the church has a unique voice, a unique message that you can't hear anywhere else. And, of course, we call right. that the gospel. Uh, right. But really, it's the whole counsel of God, uh, the whole of Scripture, all of the Bible for all of life. If your church is not preaching the Bible, 
and, and teaching you something that runs radically counter to what you're going to be hearing the other six days of the week from the culture, then there's really no point in being a Christian, no point in going to church. But if they are going to give you that message, then you absolutely need to be there because that's your life. Your life depends upon it. Uh, you being shaped into a, a, a faithful Christ-like believer depends upon you gathering with his people each Lord's Day. That's how God grows you. That's where you're watered and fertilized. That's where you're fed and nurtured. That's where the Father is giving you his, his wise counsel and instruction for how you, to, how you can live your life in accordance with his design and in accordance with his will for you. Wilson yeah. goes on in the article, the, the last line here, in our experience, the fact that we expect our members to stand with us as we stand for the Bible makes our community much more attractive, not off-putting. And I agree with that. Churches need to take their stand. And, and it doesn't matter how big or small the church is, and it doesn't matter whether the church grows or shrinks. Churches need to be willing to take their stand and say, this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we're about. This is what we think about LGBTQ issues. Mm -hmm. This is what we think about uh, how you get your sins forgiven. This is what we think about uh, all the kinds of questions that, that face us in modern life. This is how you should raise your kids. This is yeah. how you should live in your marriage as husband and wife. This is what we think about mental illness. This is what we think about work. This is what we think about the stewardship of your finances. This is what we think about uh, that grudge that you're harboring that's making you a bitter person. This is what we, this is how the Bible applies to all of life. We're going to tell you, and, and if you're offended by it, you know, that's really your problem, not ours. This, yeah. this is where we take our stand and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. And we have to have churches that are willing to do that. That's the only kind of church that can or should exist. See, I think the great de-churching could actually be a blessing in disguise. Right mm -hmm. now, if you talk about church, people don't know what you're talking about because in America, yeah. we've got a whole spectrum of churches from very, very liberal and progressive churches that have completely capitulated to the culture, obviously to churches that are, that are much more staunch in their commitment to biblical fidelity. Okay, but people don't know what you're talking about when you talk. And even even denominational labels work this way. We've got Presbyterian in our in the name of our church. You've got Reform. Yeah, yep. those churches apply to church. You know, those labels are used for churches all along the spectrum. There's really no way to escape this. But if the great de-churching means that liberal Presbyterians die and go away, if it means that progressive Reformed people or progressive Reformed churches die and go away. So the only churches left standing are churches that are committed to biblical orthodoxy. Yeah. That, to me, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think a big part of what the de-churching is is just um, hypocrites and apostates who have decided to stop pretending. Yeah. They're no longer going to yeah. pretend that they're Christians because it's not socially advantageous to do so. So they're going to right. drop out. I'd say that's that's fine because that brings a certain measure of clarity. Yeah, I think it's a no, disaster no. if we lose the Christian culture that's been built up over previous generations. It's, a, it's going to be a disaster to lose that Christian culture because it's been good to us and good for us in so many ways. Yeah. But if the great de-churching is apostates showing their true colors, they're more about the rainbow flag than they are the cross, well, fine. At least we get that clarity out of it. Yep. Well, and and I think you're totally right. And um, and I think that, that, yes, it's a shame to lose the cultural sort of heritage or momentum that our, that our fathers in the faith laid down for us. Um, those are things... I think we can recover um, over time, but but the the point there even is um, 
we're not going to recover those things by fighting the culture wars in politics or, or on, on social media or wherever the fights are happening. We're going we're gonna to recover those things by recovering the church and by right. You right. Know, those things are all downstream of the church. And the church is not some idea. The church is embodied locally. Um, and you, you need to go be a part of that. Uh, if you want to affect and change what's going, what's happening in the world around us, stop wringing your hands and stressing out and, and doom scrolling, um, all of the paranoid, uh, channels that you're, that you're on and, and start getting engaged with your church and the work that your church is doing. Um, so I think, I think that's a big, that's a big, uh, part of the, the answer to all of this. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's a, I think we should view it as a blessing. I mean, it's a huge blessing. It, the antithesis, uh, between the church and the culture around us, um, is going to only become more stark as, as yeah. fewer and fewer Christians who, who were really unbelievers that were just applying this label, um, start to come out of the closet. It's like, it's like, you know, when somebody I've had, I'm sure you've had parishioners, parishioners come ask you how to, how to deal with, you know, uh, family members who have come out as gay. Well, the first question is, do they think they're a Christian? <laughs> you know, because right, right, right. it, it's a completely different situation if they think they're a Christian, right, you know, if they think right, they're a Christian, right. this is very complicated. And you've got, you know, Corinthians, first Corinthians five and, yeah. And, and all of that. Uh, but if, if they don't think they're Christians, then we can just preach the gospel to them, you know, yeah. and, and we can, and we can, uh, and, and that's a lot more, that's a lot more straightforward. So I think that's well, what God's and, doing. And, it's and, God's and, judgment. And here's the thing. You will have people, you know, like um, I've seen this with parents and even this has happened with pastors. Their child comes out as gay or what, or, you know, some other, one of the other LGBTQ letters. Things. And then they change their theology. Yeah because they don't want to lose their relationship with their, so they, they've made, yeah. they have, you could say they made an idol out of that relationship with their child. They'd rather have the child and, totally. and that connection than a connection with Jesus. Yeah. And they're making the wrong choice. And actually in doing so, they're actually making it far more difficult for their child to ever repent in the future. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember listening to uh, Beckett Cook. I don't know if you know the name Beckett Cook, but he was a gay man in Hollywood who um, just happened to, uh, if I remember right, he was just at a coffee shop and saw some people engaged in a Bible study. And I think they were from John MacArthur's church, you know, Southern California. And somehow they strike up a conversation. They invite him to church. And of course, it, it completely, you know, he hears things he's never heard before. And because John right. MacArthur's church, you're going to hear the truth. <laughs> I mean, he's wrong on yeah. a few things, but, he, but he, you're going to hear the Bible preached for sure. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, it was it was it was startling. And he, he would say, you know, I've heard him say. Uh, you know, I didn't know I was living in rebellion against God mm -hmm. because nobody had ever told me that. Like at yeah. some deep level, I knew that, but it was so, so, you know, deeply yeah. suppressed. I didn't think about it in those terms at all. He needed somebody to tell him that. But yeah. if all you're doing is coddling sinners in their sin and not naming the sin and calling them to repentance, it could, you can yeah. never get that response. I'll give a couple other examples of the kind of pandering I'm talking about on the more evangelical side of things. You got Tim Keller and I know he's passed away and you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, but I would have, I've talked about this when he was still alive. Um, 
and I, and I do think it's a cautionary tale in a lot of ways. He was doing, it was some kind of, um, you could say, spiritually mixed audience. We had Christians and non-Christians in the audience together. I'm guessing it was New yeah. York City. It may have been like a Veritas form event, something like that. But anyway, he got que- questioned and then sort of pressed on homosexuality. Is homosexuality a sin? Are homosexuals going to hell? Mm. And, uh, you know, they're kind of trying to bait him into saying something that would obviously be offensive to a lot of the audience. And he basically says, well, and I may not have his, this is, I'm not quoting here, but this is capturing the gist of what he said. He basically said, I know that being gay does not send you to hell because being straight does not save you. And I'm like, what a completely asinine, terrible way to get at this because all you do now you it's you just have confused people this kind of fortune cookie theology does not help anybody okay christians uh don't get to see a pastor in a public forum speak with backbone and courage and i'm not saying tim keller never had courage i think he had a lot of courage but here on this particular question he clearly did not He, he he capitulated i think to his audience and it's just such a confusing way to to put things and it and it and it takes so much effort to unpack it to get to the little grain of truth that might be there what i think he should have said is we christians think everybody's going to hell mm-hmm. whether you are gay or straight, we are all sinners. We are all headed to hell. And the only people who escape God's just wrath and hell against our sin are people who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. Okay. So there's a message that it's going to be offensive in a way to everybody. I mean, you're not singling. I mean, in that sense, you know, the homosexual is not in a different position than any other sinner. They're all hell bound. But then the only way to escape hell is to repent of your sin. Is homosexuality a sin? Absolutely. And that's why Paul names it as such in, in places like Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians yeah. 6. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he can say to the Corinthians, such were some of you. Some of you were homosexuals, but you repented. You were yeah, washed right. and sanctified and justified in the name of Christ Jesus. That's one example. Another example of this is, I think it was J.D. Greer who mm-hmm. used the line that the Bible uh the Bible, sh- we need to shout what the Bible shouts about and whisper what the Bible whispers about. And the Bible <laughs> shouts about materialism and it whispers about sexual sin. And I'm like, if you said that, you just disqualified yourself from ever teaching the Bible again. You should be defrocked yeah. and you should never get near a pulpit again because you're a complete coward. Not only is that completely wrong, I mean, it's just yeah. completely goes against the grain of scripture in every which way. But it's, it's just so obvious what you're doing. Because it does not offend people in the world to talk about, you know, materialism as a sin. Okay, it would be offensive to talk about LGBTQ issues. Okay, it would be offensive to talk about the sexual issues. So you downplay that. It's just pandering. It's so cowardly. And I know J.D. Greer did kind of the pronoun hospitality thing too. I mean, here's the thing: church, you know, the S- he's in the SBC. They've got problems with, you know, women pastors. I'm like, if you've got Matt Chandler or J.D. Greer as your pastor. Now, of course, you're, you're being primed for a woman pastor because you've already got a woman for a pastor, basically. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. Uh, so that, that kind of thing, it's just so, it's so incredibly yeah. stupid. And it does, not accomplish, it does not accomplish what they think it's going to accomplish. It just yeah. doesn't. The Bible shouts about sexual sin. Now, the Bible shouts about some, some financial sins, too. Probably not in the way sure. that a lot of people think. But it does. But the Bible most definitely shouts about all kinds of sexual sins. And it certainly shouts about uh, the wickedness and unnaturalness of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. 
Well, um, I think you're spot on. I think this is this has been really helpful. I, 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 there are a couple couple little things you said there um, a second ago that I want to kind of tie up, and then and then maybe Rich, you can you can give us our, our final thoughts. Um, the one is, the one is just as you were talking about John MacArthur um, and, and the context that he's in, and just the we started the conversation talking about how we're in the Bible Belt. You know, one of the things I think we need to remember is that God God ordained particular men in your community to um, lead the church, a, a not 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 the the platonic form of the church, but the actual an actual church in in your area, and that is where you are called to to be. Um, it's it's not you shouldn't be a member of John MacArthur's church in California right, because right. he's, he is preaching and teaching and leading Californians um, who are not Southerners, you know, who are not Birmingham people and, and, and Huntsville people. They're not dealing with the kind of stuff that we are. Um, and so this is why God has ordained this is one of the reasons why God has ordained um, uh, particular men in particular places for this work. Um, so that, that's that was one thing that I, I thought was important um, to mention, and the the other is you, you you talked about how the church needs to have backbone and, and have a position on everything, or on, on a lot of things, speak very clearly and decisively about about things. I I couldn't agree more. Um, at the same time, I would say, and you and I have said the same thing that there are a lot of things for which the church needs to uh, intentionally be silent and not not silent as if uh, we don't care. But but our people need help from the church, need leadership from the church in understanding what what is what matters and what doesn't. You know what things are are you know what what things are hills to die on and what which things are not. And I and I think that's another that's another ditch on the other side of the road uh, that we find ourselves in is is you know sin separates people. People want to be isolated and 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 uh, whether they they know it or not and. They're always doing things to try to to try to distance themselves from relationship and community, and yeah. and this is one of those things. People take these hardcore positions on every single thing, and make each of them the most important thing in the entire world. And you and I talked about it in our last our, our episode about um, conspiracy theories. That that there's a there's a really healthy Christian response um, that should be on our lips frequently, which is. I don't know and I don't care, you know, um, that's a great position to have on a lot of things. Not, not all of the, not the central cultural issues that are, that the church is floundering about right now. Those, we, we must have a position on those things. Um, but there are so many things that we also need to, need to put in their place as not the most important. Yeah. Well, I'll close out with this, Larson. Um, I, I would tell anybody, period, anybody listening to this podcast, certainly, there is a great de-churching going on. Yeah. Uh, don't be a part of it because that is apostasy. Yeah. Um, if you're not in a church that preaches and teaches the whole counsel of God, that applies the word of God to all of life, personal and political, private and public, if you're not in a church that is willing to take a stand and that has set frame that, that knows what it's about and is not moving from that, that, you know, a, a church that is, that has courageous leadership, uh, yep. that is outspoken in, in how it uh, preaches and teaches and applies the word of God. 
uh, if you're not in a church like that, go find one. Yeah. Uh, if you're not in a place where a church like that exists, either start one or move. Yeah. But you need to be in a faithful, healthy, growing, mature, courageous, orthodox congregation. Yeah. It's absolutely vital to your spiritual health, growth, yeah. your eternal salvation. Yeah. You know, there's that billboard on I-65. You're coming uh, back from the beach. Uh, you know, go to church or the devil will get you. And I've talked about that billboard a lot through the years, so much so that people now have started to get me stuff. Like I've got the T-shirt that goes with it. I've been giving pictures of it and like a little drawing of the billboard. And I mean, it's, yeah. you know, which I'm happy to be associated with it because it's right. <laughs> go to church or the devil will get you. The great yeah. de-churching is the work of Satan. Yeah. And you need to understand that and you need to be plugged into and participate in the life of a faithful Christian congregation. Yeah, yeah. it's good. Well, Rich, it's been another great uh, minute here talking with you. Thanks for uh, making the time, and yeah. uh, we will we'll be back here probably in a couple weeks. We'll yep. we'll get it on the schedule, and and we'll we'll wrap up our conversation about uh, about Gilder's book, Men and Marriage. Yep, sounds good, Larson. Thanks a lot. All right, man. Cheers. The Got a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.